to the Green and Healthy Places podcast. I'm your host, Matt Morley, founder of Biophilico Healthy Buildings and Biofit Wellness Concepts. This episode, I'm in London, UK with Chris Davies, CEO of Uncommon, a flexible workspace brand with four sites around the city and a fifth on the way. Chris has a real estate background as a quantity surveyor. He's a young yet remarkably cool-headed boss with clear ideas of where he's taking his business and a lot of it has to do with building a portfolio of green and healthy workspaces across the capital. We discuss how Uncommon have, in a way, accelerated existing trends from the pre-COVID workplace industry over the last 18 months, doubling down on their basic quest to create high-quality work environments with an abundance of user appeal. Chris goes into how the Uncommon brand integrates biophilia or biophilic design consistently across all of their sites while still allowing for the inherent architectural legacy of each location to shine through. We talk about how their on and offline activity program is designed primarily to offer support for companies interested in maintaining a healthy workforce. We look at their take on sonic branding via the use of carefully curated playlists, the challenges ahead in their quest to go fully carbon neutral in the future, and the tangible rise in interest in ESG real estate from investors on one side and Uncommon's users, their client base, on the other. If you enjoy this type of content, please consider subscribing or leave a review. You can find Chris and his wonderful team at uncommon.co.uk. My contact details are in the show notes. Nada mas, here's Chris Davies of Uncommon. Chris, welcome to the show. Could you give us a quick intro to your your personal background and your role at Uncommon, and then we'll sort of jump into the details. Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm CEO at Uncommon. Um, We've been doing this for about just over six years, actually, now doing um, in the flexible workspace. I started life off as a surveyor uh, and doing all of the things that good surveyors do and got my accreditations and all that fun stuff. And then started to do a bit of residential and then ended up in this wonderful world that is flexible office. Um, so yeah, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster and it's been an interesting year last year, but um, we're very much alive and kicking. Well, it's, it's a good sign that you're still going, at least, because I know a number of brands have, have yeah, really suffered and perhaps won't quite bounce back. But you're at four workspaces now spread across London. How are you selecting? What, what's your process in terms of selecting new sites and new locations? What are the criteria involved there? Uh, yeah, well, we've actually got the fifth one on the way. So uh, the, the fifth one and the, the selection process, actually, of all of them has been pretty similar. It's evolved. That, that's the thing. We, we've always been a freehold owning business, so we've always gone in and bought the assets. Um, but it was always focused on the best quality assets we could do in that location and focusing really on from a user point of view. So we would look for assets that would allow us to create offices that all had excellent natural light. And I think that will kind of stand the testament of time. Uh, you can't find a, a office space in any of our buildings that doesn't have natural light. So actually, when you stop and think about that from an asset selection point of view, it makes things pretty tricky um, because of the fact that you think about it, like dividing up floor plates. And we spent so long thinking, well, it could divide up in this way or not in that way. And it, it means you end up saying no to a lot of buildings. Um, and I guess the, the journey that we've gone on is we were a bit more zone two focused originally because we were avoiding a lot of the competition that was there at the time. We thought, well, actually, that market might get a bit crowded. But then 
I think over time we've come very centralised. Really, we've got Holborn, which I'll be excited, slap bang in the middle of Midtown in in London. So it, it's the, the reason we've done that is we've just seen the inquiries and we've we've seen the size of buildings that we can take on and actually manage. Um, it will be double the space that we've currently got. So, so it's doubling the size of our last asset. Um, and every, each time we've basically doubled. So we, we've been growing that way um, and growing in our experience, which gives us confidence to take on larger spaces. Um, but it's been the same acquisition strategy, really, by the best you can. So you're acquiring, you you got four sites down on with a sort of zone two strategy, and now you've gone right into the, the center of the city with, with Holborn, which is site five forthcoming in 2022? Uh, yeah, so this will be 2023, actually, because it's a full redevelopment. Um, so we've got, uh, in terms of sites, we've got Highbury and Fulham, which are probably, uh, the strategy around that was around being close to people's homes. So we want to see that demand. There are slightly smaller buildings. Then we have Borough, which is the building I'm sitting in today, um, obviously pretty central. And then we're in Liverpool Street, which is slap bang on top of Liverpool Street Station. So couldn't really be more central if we tried. Um, but it's a great asset. Like It's got four sides of natural light. We've got a church next to us, which gives a real bit of um, uh, the historic element while you're then looking up at all of the giant towers that are down Bishopsgate. So you really get this nice contrast. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always been about quality. And how have you had to adapt in response to the events of the last 18 months? It's, it's and beyond things like you know, sanitizing hand gel. I'm thinking more in terms of how there's so much debate right now about the future of the workplace and how, in a sense, everything was thrown up in the air and, and we're just starting to see things settle down again. From your perspective at the head of Uncommon, how have you, or indeed, have you adapted your, your service products, uh, your service and products for clients over the last 18 months? Um, so for, let's answer that from a product level. Like we put things in from all the way from cameras that can sense the temperature when people walk through the door and then there'll be an alert that goes off if someone's slightly the wrong temperature or too high. So that then our team can deal with it uh, very discreetly. Um, we've done all of that and everything else that one would expect. But I think we've kind of we've kind of been approaching it, saying, "Well, actually, what did we do before, uh, and what did the market want before?" So the reason why I'm saying this is, I think all the trends were already there. If you if we ignore the exact element of what COVID was, but we just go into, well, what were the trends that were already there? The trends were already there for better workspaces, healthier workspaces, greener workspaces. Um, what COVID's done is kind of turbocharged that flywheel. Um, so where we had all those headlines of people saying the office is dead, actually what the headlines should have really read was bad offices are dead. And that's been evident by the bounce back that we've seen. I mean, us from an uncommon side, of, we've really bounced back strongly. We're, we're kind of almost back to full strength in terms of capacity in the buildings. You go and look at the competition, I was actually chatting to one of them about an hour ago and they've done the same. It's because they've got high quality spaces. The stuff that is struggling is this low quality that's got no appeal to anyone uh, from a, a user point of view. And I think the big thing that always gets me is that I think companies have really worked out that staff are their biggest overhead, 60 to 70%, depending on kind of what industry, even up to 80%. 
if you are then having real estate sitting in your last, call it 20%, somewhere in there, actually, if you invest more in that real estate, and it means that your staff are then happier, um, you can recruit um, the better quality candidates and you can retain the staff you want, it's, it's an absolute no-brainer to spend that little bit more on your real estate in those kind of healthier places. So what we need to do as Uncommon is make sure we're providing that kind of next generation space that people really want to be in, that they are talking about with their managers that then mean that the decision makers go, we will spend more there because it's a better environment for our team and they get that kind of equation. Okay, so the product level enhancements to do with, let's call it, you know, under the general umbrella of health, you mentioned the idea of sort of temperature cameras and things like that. Are those, do you see those as temporary additions or do you think those things could in fact be here to stay or medium term additions? Um, I think they kind of, they'll be in and now really stay, but um, it, it's got to get more advanced. So for example, like the census de- uh, debate is going on, we're about to put sensors in uh, a lot of our communal spaces. That needs to monitor air quality, that needs to monitor where people are, it needs to monitor um, any kind of emission that's coming out, up out of the space. We're also making decisions around um, not using cleaning products and just going uh, basically to uh, someone going around with a massive backpack on and steam cleaning absolutely everything so that you get away from all the kind of toxicity that comes in. So I think what it's doing or done is start a big debate um, but the debate was again already there and we were trying to get there. I, I think the problem people have is that we don't know the exact endpoint. What do you do with all that data? I don't think people have solved that just yet. Like we've got a big data strategy that we're trying to put in place about, okay, we, we collect all this data. What are we going to do with it? What does it mean? Who, who is it of interest to? Because if you don't understand that and you don't get that, um, why are you collecting data? So it's a bit of a chicken and egg that you go round and round in circles with. Um, but I think really the questions that healthier spaces have kind of started to ask is, well, you've got to be collecting the data on that space to then understand whether it's healthy or not. Um, and I think things will come in time, whether standards come out, um, whether whether clients are just asking those questions. I, I think that the fullness of time will say yes, but we're not quite there yet. But as a provider, we've got to make sure we get there. Certainly from what I can see, you know, you're doing really beyond construction decisions that one makes, there's then the interior fit out ventilation. And then beyond that, it's monitoring to check for any crazy spikes in VOC levels or CO2, whatever it might be. So from what I can see of the interiors, you know, you're, you're doing a lot in that sense to create healthy spaces. Part of that clearly is is by affiliate. You've you've described yourself as a business as the sort of um, uh, holistic and, and mindful workspace. And so you've got these these on one side it's about productivity and it's about work, and on the other side you've got this sort of health and and mindful um, yeah, mind body connection. How do you as CEO? How do you see those two fitting together? Is that just is that a generational thing? Like there's just a certain generation of worker or business that expects those two, uh, the yin and the yang, if you like, to sit together because that seems to be a part of your, a crucial part of your positioning, right? As you kind of, you combine those two worlds in a way. 
Yeah, and I think it comes down to um, not everything is perfect for everyone. And we've got to, as a business, be able to provide the optionality for individuals and companies. Um, so, for example, what I mean by that is uh, one person might really want to do the boxing class while the other wants to do the yoga. You've got to then provide a suitable space that allows that to happen. Um, and that's the challenge is to make sure that you can provide the right environments that are um, constructive for what they're trying to do and achieve. Um, we can, as a business, only support. And that's, that's our role in this. We want to support companies. We want to support members in making sure they are healthy, kind of focused on what they're doing. Um, and that's just by providing the right environments and space and, I guess, a stage for them to do that. Um, does, that, does that involve a physical space? As in, you have some kind of a fitness room or a yoga room within every setup? Yeah, yeah. There's, we, that's the way we tend to approach it. And we've done obviously through, throughout COVID, we did a lot of stuff online. We then done like mental uh, health awareness. Um, uh, well, we did a week of it, um, but we do a lot of that online as well. Um, there's there's loads of different ways, but I think it's kind of being flexible around what is working. So we continue to do the online gym classes. We continue to do the physical ones. Um, and it's just evolving your offering to make sure you are doing that for um, for your members, really. And the interiors is probably the thing that, that leaps out uh, from someone looking looking at your business from, from the outside in. How are you... What's your strategy there in terms of creating some kind of consistent palette or aesthetic across your sites? Do you believe it's more about um, yeah, creating an individual site uh, for each one of the, the five that you're, you're building or have built already? Like, what's, your, what's your policy there in terms of the interiors? Um, I think my answer on interiors actually comes into more of a brand question where you... When you walk through the door of an uncommon, we've done our job if you know that it's an uncommon without seeing the word uncommon. That's the way we approach it because we try and play on people's senses. So we have the various different scents that actually get uh, put through our space. So they smell a certain way. That may change, but it's one of the sensory elements that we play with. We then have the music that was going through the space that changes throughout the working day and week. So Thursday, it's a little bit more... uh, up tempo and upbeat than it would be on a Monday morning. But again, it's something that you're subconsciously kind of noticing as you go through. Then you kind of couple it with, well, what, how does it, how do I feel in this space? What are the physical products that are in this space? What does this chair feel like? What, like all of those sensory elements that you're, you're there with. Um, in terms of each site, we very much approach each site as what, what does a building tell us when you walk in there? Holborn, for example, has got a lot of historic architecture that's in in the space already. Um, even down to things that were um, put in, like the original doors, the uh, old tiles that have been put through the building. And what, what you kind of do is you go, well, let's listen to that language that the building's already got, and then that, let's play that through into our colour palettes. And that's how we kind of generate... Uh, really upwards a scheme out of it um, and there's there is another point of while while we're not dictating that every and, and it's definitely wrong and I think you end up with a kind of Starbucks or McDonald's type effect if you just do the same thing in every site we don't we want to have different colors there but they all have to work together 
and they all have to sing the same tune as the building. Otherwise, it just doesn't feel authentic. Um, so it's, it's always a kind of balance of doing that while then learning from the mistakes of the past. And we, we have made over the last five, six years quite a few mistakes in design. Um, and, and they're not really mistakes. What they are are kind of points that we change and learn. Like you need to get your real estate working well for you and hard. Like it's when you're buying it, it's a big investment. So if something isn't being used, then it must evolve and change. Like we sit here and go, okay, well, these high tables have really worked well on this site. People love sitting on them. Let's in the next site put lots of those in. Um, if, if you've got an area that doesn't, then it won't kind of survive for the next design. So it's that kind of iterative process um, mixed with the building and the area that really dictates how we're going to kind of set up the building, really. So would it be fair to say that, that once you'd settled upon this strong presence of biophilia in your sites, you, that worked, it, it got positive feedback, it seemed to, to do the job, and then you've, you've kept that consistent because it is one of your strong points, right? Is the sort of biophilic design is really quite unique. Yeah, like that runs through, it's, it's the design of Holborn that I've literally just been doing the last month or so. It's one of the key things that we've designed into when we're talking about very, uh, I guess, traditional m and &E type conversations, like all the mechanical bits that are going in. But we're also saying, but this is where we're going to be putting this green wall. This is where we're going to be creating uh, this environment. And it's really, I guess, it's central to our DNA now. I, I can't, I can't think of it in common without it. So it, it's, it's part of the DNA, it's part of the brand and it kind of goes about saying we design almost around it now, knowing that it's got a big part, part of the design. But you certainly, you've got that logged in and it, it looks beautiful and, and I know how functional it can be in terms of tangible benefits for, for people spending time in those spaces. You're playing in that space of sort of sound and light, which again, I think is really quite quite next level in terms of, of workspace design. I'm not seeing a lot of that out there. Um, how does that play into your stance on, on CSR or as we're increasingly calling it ESG? Have you, have you taken a, does it play through from biophilia into a stance on environmental management, for example? Is, it, is, it sort of, is there a joined up position as a, at a company level for that? Yeah. Um... We've been working very, very hard to make sure we get there on that from a kind of an ESG type point of view. Um, it's it's really, I guess, the next battleground um, for office space. We will be in. We're increasingly being asked about our strategy and policies on it. Um, I believe that it will get to the point within London that buildings will be just unlettable unless you've got a very set defined strategy, whether that's mostly or probably around carbon um, at this stage. Uh, yeah, we, we, we're trying to make sure we've got a holistic approach to it, that we're in kind of looking at various different bits and going after a few awards, whether that is uh, being B Corp certified, doing all of our kind of science-based target kind of approach. The problem is with the world that we've been going through is just trying to say, well, what is right? What is the best accreditation to go through? How should we judge ourselves? Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a pretty grey area at the moment. I think a lot of people will struggle with it and 
we've just been committing more and more resources to, to make sure that we kind of lead the pack on it. Um, we will be able to, as, because of the freehold side of our business, we own the building. Any changes we want to make, we make them. Um, so it's going to be one of our kind of key strengths. Uh, and it's definitely a kind of watch this space type approach to it. Um, but we want to do it, we want to do it well in the right way. But we're just trying to work out what the right way is. <laughs> yeah, it seems as there probably isn't one answer to that. That there's even on the certification system, there's the sort of the green building path and then there's the healthy building path, and, and they're often they go together and they interconnect, but ultimately it's two entirely different yep. certification processes. And you think, gosh, well, surely there'll be one one day, right? But who knows? Yeah, well, we can't even agree what a carbon, whether carbon neutral, net zero, or what the, the same term, you end up in this a bit of a mess where I, it will become clearer in the fullness of time. And I think the strongest schemes or accreditations will, will really win out. You mentioned that you're increasingly being asked. I take it that means there's you know, either direct or indirect pressure as a business to align with, with ESG fundamentals. Now, is, are you seeing a sort of groundswell of interest? Are you getting the same type of requests from your customers or is this coming from above in terms of investor at the at sort of investor level or is it a bit of both perhaps now? Well, I guess to answer my question, your question, I think actually you end up at the same people. So if you take, we have clients that are have investors themselves that also go down to, should we call it the various members of the public that are pushing more and more pressure on them and they are also wanting to get ahead of it. So they are then asking us from a client point of view, but we also then have investors and the people that put the money into the investors are also members of the public. So I think basically what you're having now is that the world has certainly woken up for this and it's piling pressure and voting in one way that they can, which is with their money and with their pension funds, and then trying to make a more informed decision. And so therefore asking all of the various investments that they are that they have their money in, um, well, what are you doing about it? So it's no longer good enough to just have a generic answer. You've got to have real credentials to sit alongside um, your strategy to be able to kind of answer that from an investor side and their client side. We're caught in the crossfires of both. So I'm getting it from both sides to answer your question kind of in a simplistic way. I can completely see how, for example, someone like myself who, who's you know, operating in this space, in a sense now that the community that one chooses to become a part of beyond those human interactions. And I think so much of what brands like Uncommon offer is, is that opportunity to inter interact and connect and in some sense play a part in a, in a very small but, but meaningful tribe of, of people who perhaps share some common interests. But at the same time, that, that address and the brand that one associates oneself with, uh, if that carries meaning, and in this case, carries meaning around ESG and sustainability. Now, that's that's a valuable. That's as valuable as my signing up for Surfers Against Sewage monthly contribution membership, uh, for example. You know, it's it's a it's a value add from a client perspective for sure. And I think what I see that you're doing is yeah, not just using biophilia and plants as decoration, but that's part of a far wider, joined up and cohesive strategy. And and therefore, the greenwashing thing just doesn't even come into play. 
I'm just wondering from your perspective now where you're you're seeing the industry, how you see the next five years playing out. Do you see any major changes coming to anticipate having to radically evolve the business or do you feel like you've found a recipe that works now and it's a case of replicating it out over a number of sites? Yeah, um, look, I think the, to, your, to your last point, the ESG topic is such a massive one that is, is just happening. So unless you're there with it, like you will be left behind and your business won't exist from a operator's point of view. Um, so that is kind of mission number one to make sure we're really leading on that. Um, I think there will be a, the market will be favorable to people that just create better office spaces. And that then becomes a question of, well, us as Uncommon are currently defined as kind of like a serviced opera office operator. Um, and there are loads of titles around that, but actually we just end up being an office operator and actually space just is that it's only space. It's not, we, we start to have less divisions around what is a traditional lease provider and what is a traditional lease. The world just becomes a bit more hotelerized to use that made up term. Um, and people demand more from their space. Um, so I think it's, it's a one where it's just all about quality. If, if you are providing a quality service, you will evolve with the market. If you don't, you, you only need to le- look at the lease length terms that people are now signing up for. They've got more flexibility. That's what they want. I, I've never understood how someone can sign a lease of over 10 years because you look at how quickly any market evolves now. You probably, you'll, you'll probably be incorrect in the size of space that you need throughout that 10 year period. So I think the market fundamentally will come to this type of operation. And I think it's a great space to be in, but we've got to be aware of the kind of bigger flows that are going on around the likes of ESG. That's kind of the risk area um, for me. One final question then, and then I'll I'll let you get on with your day. But I did want to pick up on something I, I, again, noticed from your site, the idea of how you are creating um, different zones and spaces within the overall workspace so for almost i think you had a strategy around certain types of work being done in certain places and i can really see that just struck a a chord with me based on what i'm seeing happening in the world of work right now the idea of almost zones for deep work and perhaps more collaborative work is that something that's been a response to the last 18 months with COVID, or were you already on that track and in a sense it's being proven right by what's going on yeah, I know it, the activity-based working approach was always there. Um, it's, it's little things like you see certain tasks behind me where I'm sitting at the moment. There's certain, there are booths that are perfect for one person going into, I've just got to get through this X piece of work. But then it's not right for if they wanted to meet a colleague and have a chat and an informal chat, which is where you go to one of our kind of cafe lounges and you'd sit down there and you'd have an informal meeting in there or you might need the very formal meeting which at that point you're going into one of the meeting rooms so it completely depends and we've got to create spaces that allow people to have that different kind of area for them to do the best work they can 
Um, it's, it's a big thing. And I think that's where companies, if they just go in and just put desks everywhere and they say, well, that's the office, that's where you, it, it doesn't work. Like you need to create those different places and you've got to create a reason for people to come into the offices. We can support them in that. Um, and that's going to be the key way that you get people out of being at home because it's just a better experience. And that's got to be the win for an office in general. Well, look, uh, I can honestly say you, you seem to be doing a lot of, of deep strategic thinking about your product and service, and it really shows. So congrats on all you've done so far. Best of luck for everything that comes next. How can people uh, reach out, connect, um, I guess, via the website? Yeah, website's best. LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, we're kind of all over that. Um, yeah, just do that. Send me a message. Perfect. Very good. Well, we'll link in the show notes. Chris, thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bye.